0: Last Wednesday we started our um, discussion and study of the the doctrine of election and we looked especially at the doctrine as it appears in the Old Testament and ended um, with um, some brief uh, discussion of the concept of the remnant in the book of Isaiah and then as Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 11. What I want to do uh, this week is start looking at the doctrine of election in the New Testament, and I'm going to uh, pick out a number of passages here. We're going to look at a a number of passages in the Gospel according to John, then we're going to look at passages in uh, 1 Peter, and then in Ephesians chapter 1, and finally in Romans chapter 9. So those are going to be the four passages that we focus on in the um, this week, and probably in a, a week or two after this as well. So let's start with the Gospel according to John. Um, I think there are are two things, especially that we want to focus on in the Gospel of John, and those two things are first of all that there is a lot about uh, election about. Um, Choosing God's choosing in this gospel more than in the other gospels. Um, and we're going to look at the various passage passages in which he talks about this either directly or um, in, in indirectly, in, this, in the sense that he doesn't actually use the word, but that the doctrine is being uh, described or taught in these passages. So we're going to begin with the passages in which the word is actually used. And the first one I want to refer to is John 13, verse 18. John 13, verse 18. Now this is in the um, upper room on the eve of our Lord's death. And Jesus has washed their feet and has pointed them to the example he set for them in doing that. And he then goes on to say in verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. And of course, he has in mind Judas, who will betray him in just a very short time. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass you may believe that I am he. So first of all Jesus is saying even among the twelve there is a distinction made. He says I know whom I have chosen. I have chosen all of you but one. There's one among you who is not chosen. And that's, that one is here among you Notice this too, this also implies God's predetermination of all things, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. That's a prophecy from the Psalms. And it's a, uh, Jesus here says that that is being fulfilled now in Judas' betrayal. And then he says, not only that, but I'm telling you about this. I'm telling you about this betrayal beforehand so that when it comes to pass, you may know that I am he, that I am uh, the Lord, the, the Christ, at a minimum. Though he doesn't, though, if you notice there, the word he is not in the Greek, so that you may believe that I am, period, is what the Greek says.
1: Would the, would the Koine Greek, would they have heard I am I am He, uh, or would they have heard I and Yahweh?
0: They would; it would have been there by implication, not directly, because the koine wouldn't sound like the Hebrew word. But you see, the you the general pre, uh, preordination or predetermination of all things—it twice there, but then the more specific doctrine of election I know whom I have chosen so Christ says uh, I was the one who chose and in other places in John he talks about how God chose but here he says I chose so you get also the implication of his deity here and then he not only says I chose but I know whom I have chosen and that know probably carries with it not just the idea well I know who they are but I know them in love. I know them because I have made them my own.
1: Now, our Armenian friends would say, well, he just chose them to be his disciples, right? Yes, but, I think so. But he does speak about Judas being the son of perdition. Yes. So uh, Judas is chosen un- unto this office of, the uh, the one who uh, turns against him.
0: Yes, and to fulfill the scripture says he says here that he would be betrayed by one who ate bread with him. Um, and those words that Jesus says there, I know whom I have chosen. Paul echoes in Second Timothy two verse nineteen. Uh, Paul says there, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. You see that? Very much an echo of what Jesus said in John 13, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So Im- important um, reference there, I think, in First uh, sec- Timothy 2. The words of the Lord in John, in Second Timothy. Sorry. So that's the first, the first passage in John. That that choosing. I know whom I have chosen. If we go now to uh, chapter fifteen, John fifteen, and this is still on the same evening. Thirteen chapter thirteen is early in the evening, just after they've sat down and Jesus has washed their feet. But now we're later in the evening and Jesus is giving this rather lengthy discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16. And he's talking here to his disciples about his departure and about uh, some of the things that they can expect after he um, ascends into heaven. He talks about how the world will hate them and so on. But in verse um, Sixteen, he says, "This you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give you." And I, again, uh, some might say, "Well, He's talking to the twelve, and He's talking about choosing." The twelve, but here, remember, he begins this chapter with, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit." And here he's still talking about that bearing fruit. So he's not just talking about the apostles here. In verse sixteen, he's talking about um, all his all his own all those whom he has chosen. And we may take these words as addressed to us also. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And you see, Jesus puts that choice then of us first before everything else. He says, not that you chose me. I didn't choose you because you chose me. I didn't choose you because I foresaw that you would believe in me. I didn't choose you because of anything uh, that you did. You did not choose me. I chose you. That was first. And when I chose you, notice that too, I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That is, I appointed you to this uh, business of bearing fruit, the fruit of good works, and to a fruit that doesn't fail, your fruit, that your fruit should remain. That implies the whole doctrine of preservation as well that he will uh, maintain his work of sanctifying them so that they may bear fruit, so that their fruit does not fail, that your fruit will remain. And finally, that whatever you ask in my name, he may give you. So this choice of Christ also means that the Father will be willing to answer their prayers when they ask in Jesus' name. It's because he has chosen them that he is willing to answer their prayers. There's a lot of implications there in that passage about what this uh, doctrine of election implies for the life of God's people in the world. That's John 15, verse 16, and then there's another verse in this same chapter, verse 19, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And see again, he's talking about his choice of them and of us. This is clearly not just a reference to the, uh, the twelve. And he's saying, I chose you out of the world. He chose them to be separated from the world. His election was the means by which they were separated from the world, the fundamental cause of their separation from the world. And this election, which is manifested in their being called out of the world, then implies also that the world will hate them. There you get the implication that not all are chosen also.
1: Can you talk about the distinction, I mean, uh, the way that John uses the word world, and here's a good case that... The world, I mean, if if we immediately try to mash up John 3.16 with this, we'd say, you know, to the person who says that God loves the world, meaning every person without distinction.
0: Yeah. It doesn't work here. No, it doesn't. Here, clearly, the word world means the unbelieving world, the wicked world, from which he calls his own people. And that's a very common use of the term world in the scriptures. It can mean in many different passages. It does mean in many different passages the wicked world, the world to which we no longer belong because of the call and election of our Lord Jesus Christ. But in John 3, verse 16, uh, it doesn't mean that. There it's world um, in the sense of all nations, John 3, verse 16 is the famous verse that um, you hear over and over again, and and rightly so. It's a very important verse. Um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And so here the distinction is, Um, between Jews and all nations. And that's a very common distinction also in the New Testament. The world means all nations. Christ didn't come just to save the Jews. God loved the world. And he sent his son to save the world.
1: That is, men from every nation.
0: Yes. Yes. So that's John 15. Anything more on on that? Now, the next passage then I want to go to is John chapter 10. And this is a very important chapter about um, the doctrine of election. Even though it doesn't mention election directly. And... Election is just implied here in this chapter. In the fact that he keeps on talking about his sheep. His sheep are his chosen ones. And in the way he talks about his sheep. And we'll we'll see that as we work through some of the verses in this chapter. So... Uh, He's talking about him, this is the passage, the famous passage about him being the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep, he says. But let's begin with verses 3 and 4 here. To him, that is to the shepherd of the sheep, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So he speaks. He speaks to his sheep. He calls them by name. He knows each one of them by name. And he calls their names and leads them out. Leads them out of the fold, in other words, uh, uh, to green pastures and so on. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So you have this relationship that the shepherd has with his sheep. It begins with the shepherd knowing his sheep, knowing each one of them, calling each one by name. And as he calls them, drawing them to follow him as he leads them. And they follow him because when they hear they hear him calling their names, they hear him addressing them. And they know him through his address to them.
2: Other animals do that too, you
0: know? Yes, absolutely. This is something the the sheep know their shepherd's voice and other animals know their master's voice. Yes. And Jesus is picking up on that idea and he's saying, this is the way it is with me and my sheep as well. My sheep are a specific group among men I know each one of them I call each one of them by name they hear my voice they know my voice when they hear it and they follow me because they know my voice but they know my voice because I have known them first and addressed them by name In
1: verse 5 is really good too That a stranger they will not follow
0: yes They do not know the voice of strangers. And and the name uh, by which he calls them, of course, is names like you find in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are the names by which he calls his people. And when he addresses his sheep with those names, they, they recognize themselves as the weary and the heavy laden. And they go to him because of his promise that he will give them rest. And they seek the fulfillment of that promise from him. So even that that name that he gives them, weary and heavy laden, or the thirsty, um, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and drink. The thirsty, that's a name by which he addresses his own. And his own, when they hear that name, recognize it as their name. And hearing their name, they follow him, they go after him in order to receive his blessings. You said that also applies
1: to the names and the Beatitudes?
0: Yes, absolutely. The meek, the lowly in heart, the peacemakers and so on, yes.
2: And I'll make that personal and so say that's the way it is for me, right? Yeah. I take that each one of those he's talking to me. We, we can talk about it in the broad picture we have to, but we also have to take that and say, this is me He's gone. yes,
0: there are many who hearing the voice of the good shepherd say, I'm not weary I'm not heavy laden I'm not thirsty I don't need him but there are those who he has chosen who do hear that and who do respond So that's the first, and um, he repeats that same idea in verse 27, actually. He says basically the same thing. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Then also in verse 11, and we're going to come back to this when we get to the doctrine of definite atonement. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep and remember these sheep are the ones who hear his voice and who follow him they are his chosen ones the good shepherd gives his life for them verse 14 is another one in this chapter I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and am known by my own we've already talked about those kinds of statements in this um, chapter And in verse 15, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in verses 26 to 29, taking that a little bit more broadly, we've already mentioned 27, but taking the whole section there, beginning with verse 25, when the Jews questioned him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. And there, a very again, a very powerful statement, a, a statement that is really, in a way, kind of shocking. Jesus doesn't say, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. He says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. These wicked Jews, these Jews who rejected him as the Christ, were not of his sheep. And that's the ultimate explanation for the fact that they do not believe. Just as we've seen that the God is absolutely sovereign over all sin, he is sovereign also over unbelief. Without being responsible for it, while we and all those who do not believe remain responsible for it. And it's in that context then where he says, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. He says, you don't hear my voice because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They do hear. And I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Um,
1: I always use that verse as... Is, is that one essence or one of one accord, or both?
0: I, of I, one essence first, and of one mind, okay. following from that. Yes. But notice too, then, and the, here we're coming to the the, the other um, another aspect. He yeah. says, I and my father
2: are one. How do you separate that in his um, carnal self, I guess, as his manhood?
0: He's he one said with. was
2: right here. Yes. While he was the Christ. Yeah. And yet he said he was one with the Father. Yeah. But the Father so... was not with him
0: enough. Yes, he was. He was with him he was one he was first of all the, the foundation of it he's one in essence with the father one god
2: yes,
0: right. father son and holy spirit that's underlying this whole thing i and my father are one but
2: as the son
0: but then separate
1: person
0: he's the second person in our flesh yes and he also means in my flesh i am one with my father in the not in the sense that he's of the same essence His His human nature was not in the same essence the divine being of course but in the sense that he's united with his father and that's the same sense then in which he talks in John 17 when he says we are one, I want my people to be one with us so there's a lot of implications I and my father are one yes, and they are of one mind then as well that is the mind that preserves, that wants to preserve and is able to preserve the people. Am I missing the point?
1: Yeah. No, it's in their deity that they're one, Mary. It's not in their and in Christ humanity is right. So what and they were separate when they were
2: when Jesus was here saying this.
0: No, no, they weren't separate. They were still one they were one. In the in the divine being, in the divine essence but they were not but according to his human nature he was human not of the nature. same essence according to his divine nature he was yes. of the same essence according to his human nature he so was when not he was
2: speaking here I and my father are one was speaking out of his divine essence
0: out of both uh, in both ways he saw, talks about himself as one person I yes. uniting uh, which unites the two natures so he's, but it's one in two different ways it
2: has to
0: be yes. the but then their, their purpose yes. and their work is one as well the giving of eternal life and the preservation no one shall snatch them out of my father's hand it's, it's very rich this whole idea I and my father are one You can. we've only kind of skimmed over the surface of it you could explore that idea in depth in John because you find it more often.
1: Much different than the Synoptic Gospels.
0: Yes, John has some very profound theology in his um, in his gospel. But notice to then, to move on then to the next aspect of the Gospel of John that we want to talk about. In that last verse, verse 29, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. So he's talking about his sheep and he says, My Father has given them to me. And that's the next thing that I want to address. This is a phrase that you find In a number of different places in the Gospel of John, Jesus keeps on talking about those whom the Father has given him. And these are the elect. These are the ones whom God chose from before the foundation of the world. These are the ones whom God gave to Christ so that Christ could save them. So that Christ could make them one with himself. So that they could be crucified with him, buried with him, raised with him in newness of life glorified with him, and so on. They were given to Christ. And this phrase, let's look at some of the different places then where he uses this language, besides this one. First in chapter 6, John chapter 6. And remember, this is his whole discourse on the bread of life. I am the bread of life, he says, and You must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life. But he also uses this language, John 6, verse 37. If we start at verse 6, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. So he's he's talking, making that same distinction he made in John chapter 10. You've seen me and you do not believe. But then he switches over again to his sheep, only here he doesn't talk about them as his sheep, he talks about them as those whom the Father has given him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So if they don't come to him, the implication is the Father didn't give them to Jesus in the first place. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, notice that again, all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, And I will raise him up at the last day. So you have this progression again here. First, they are those whom the Father has given him. And he says, I will not lose any one of them. I will raise them up at the last day. I will not cast them out. And then he goes on to say that they are the ones who see the Son and believe in him, that they then have everlasting life. And he raises them up at the last day. So you get this whole fruit of that Father's giving these to him. All those results, the raising up at the last day, and the believing in him, and the having everlasting life, and the not being cast out, and so on. You see how this phrase, those whom the Father gives me, takes us back to that whole idea of the absolute sovereignty of God, and the and the completeness of our salvation in God. It's the complete dependence of our salvation on God and on his work. It doesn't depend on us. It depends on God and on God alone. He's the one who does it. And Jesus is throughout the Gospel of John He's John is picking out from his discourses those those places where Jesus talked about this kind of thing and he's, he's bringing them to the foreground as the other Gospels don't and he's Emphasizing this because he wants us to know that he is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, as he says later in the epistle. And then, of course, you have John 17, his high priestly prayer, also on the eve of his death. And and this prayer, can, can,
1: because it's one of my favorite verses too. Can you speak to 6:44?
0: Six forty four, okay.
1: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> How can no wait a minute, I've Nobody got the wrong can come to
2: me except father.
0: Yeah. Okay. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, this is another thing that John does a lot in this, or, or that Jesus did a lot in this discourse on the bread of life. He repeated himself a lot, right? He keeps on using the same language over and over again. He talks about his flesh and his blood and eating and drinking his flesh and his blood and the bread that comes down from heaven and, and this um, uh, raising him up at the last day. This, he keeps on repeating this language and, he keeps repeating this language because he wants us in our minds to tie all this stuff together. And he therefore ref- goes back and he, he associates these repeated ideas with different things along the way and here it is uh, associated with something else. I will raise him up at the last day. But how does that happen that I raise him up at the last day? Well, The Father draws them to to him, and they come to him. And why do they come to him? Because the Father gave him to them, and because he calls them by name, and because he gave himself for them, and because he will not lose anything, because he will work faith in them, and so on. He takes all these different ideas and and ties them together by these uh, repeated phrases.
1: That's not to say that we can't resist um, God uh, in the short haul. Correct. Right? But this, this does speak to the effectual calling. Yes. That we will not frustrate God's work of drawing us to Christ.
0: Or his work of election either, for that matter. Right? Yeah, then John 17, we have Jesus' high priestly prayer, as I was saying. And this prayer of Jesus is is just filled with the language we've been talking about, especially that language of giving. The Father giving uh, those whom he has chosen to Christ. This begins already in 17, verse 2 as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. The word give occurs three times there. First, the Father gives him authority, and that authority is universal. It's over all flesh. God gave him that authority over all flesh, and that all flesh includes unbelieving flesh. God gave him that authority so that he should give eternal life to as many as the Father gave him. So you have that, that as many as the Father gave him. That's his elect again whom he gives to Christ. And Christ gives them eternal life. And in order that Christ may give them eternal life, God has given him authority over all flesh. That's the first place where he mentions it. He uses it again in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. And notice here, these are given out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Why did they keep his word? Because you gave them to me. In verse 9 again. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours.
1: Now, would the Armenians again, limit this to the office of the disciples slash apostles?
0: I do not know what they would do with this one. It would be very difficult, I think, to limit the high priestly prayer to the apostles.
1: Well, you know that passage that he's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, and... Yeah. And all my friends that will say, well, he's making a, a general prayer to the Father for all of humanity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But here in verse 9,
0: I do not pray for the world. I do not pray for the world. Yeah. Um, verse 11 as well. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. See, he keeps on going back to this. You have given them to me. And associating with that, you have given them to me all these different aspects of his work. And here it's making them one with himself and the Father. Verse 12, again, while I was with them in the world... I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that is who? Judas, again. And
2: verse
0: 20. Why does he say he was
2: lost? Because he was. Well, I understand, but he had never been chosen.
0: Right. And he said that, that's implied in, in verse in thirteen, right? If you go back to thirteen, and you chapter thirteen, and you take it in Sorry, connection with that. Yeah.
1: Well, he was chosen as a disciple, but he wasn't chosen as an elect. Right. Yes.
0: Uh, and then, uh, as well, in verse four, uh, twenty-four, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me. May be with me where I am. Again, associating this giving with another aspect, yet another aspect of his work, that they may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then notice the next verse as well, O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these, that is, those whom you have given me, have known that you sent me and I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them.
1: Do you think Paul picks up the before the foundation of the world from this sort
0: of statement? Could be. Could be. don't know. It's a different language but uh, it's certainly an implication of what he says here.
1: I'm thinking of Ephesians
0: 1. Yeah. I, I, I don't know whether he got it from this or whether he got it elsewhere. And then one more time in 18 verse 9. And he's talking then to those who came to, him to capture him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus says, verse 8, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the same might be fulfilled which he spoke of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. And when you look at that in the context, what you see is, when Jesus says to them, Let these go their way, he he's, puts it in the form of a request, but the request is, is his powerful word, which actually prevents them from taking his disciples. And that's very clear from earlier in the chapter when he first asks them, verse 4, Whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So the power of his voice knocked them over, and he showed them that he he was not, they could not take him unless he was willing. He was giving himself.
2: And it's so amazing that they didn't catch on to that. I mean, humanly speaking, there too you see the the power of God blinding them, because it if you were talking to people and they all fell over they get up and think they're as bold as
0: ever that's yeah. very strange it is,
1: yes well, I, I can't imagine being, when the wind is blowing gusting and, and you see people that are being knocked over they know what's happening why they're being <laughs> propelled over but in this case they have no idea no idea right it's just
2: just like him the healing of Malchus's ear the same the same minute I mean same time yeah. same place and none of it the same sin no. so you see the power of God knocking them over but also blinding them
0: yeah
1: well I mean Peter is blind there too because Peter must have seen them all fall over yeah right and still he pulls the sword and cuts off the high priest did he do that after they had fallen over
0: that's in verse 10 so yes probably after
2: okay yeah
0: Huh. Um, and there are some who would say about verse uh, 6 they drew back and fell to the ground that what that means is that they, were, they had crowded up around him because Judas had already indicated who it was, whom they should take and when he um, said to them I am he, they drew back and they fell on their faces they fell prostrate in worship, basically. In worship. Yeah. Not that they tumbled over backwards, but they drew back and collapsed on their faces.
2: It's good that on that. It's a
0: Good Oh. <laughs>
1: it's the
2: first time I heard him preach. Yeah.
1: So, uh, which do you take, it, or do you think it's too uh, ambiguous?
0: Uh, it might be too ambiguous, um, but it's certainly a possibility there. Uh, it explains why he says they drew back if they had just all tumbled backwards there would be no need for them to draw back but the key is of course that the power of his voice knocked them over and it's not nothing happens there in the garden except what what is according to his will that's what he's showing them this is all happening under his sovereign direction. Not according to the will of man, ultimately, but according to the will of God and even of Christ himself. He's giving himself for his own. that's what I had in the gospel according to John we could say an awful lot more we could go into detailed exegesis of these passages but I was, just wanted to bring out some of these prominent ideas here
1: I was going to cross reference Hebrews 2 that makes the same use of I and the children that God has given me yes so it's not a unique to John either
0: oh no Not by any means. Um, The next um, place we're going to go then is 1 Peter. We always go to Peter, don't
2: we? seems like everybody does on everything.
0: Well, Peter Peter has a very important passage um, about not only election, but about reprobation as well. But we're going to begin with Uh, uh, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, Jesus Christ elect according to the foreknowledge there you have that word chosen again and here of course it's associated with the foreknowledge of God his determinate foreknowledge but also his foreknowledge of love
2: my preposition in that verse 2 King James, is through instead of in through sanctification instead of in sanctification Isn't Okay. Totally a different idea there
0: yeah, let's take a look at what the Greek says. If I can get to it anyway. Sometimes I can't connect. Yeah, doesn't look like it's going to connect.
2: Well, it's not been
0: yeah. Oh, here we go. Um, it's in. Okay. Which can mean by. In is broader in the in the I Greek. Than, yeah. I would not use through because dia is. Yeah. More, but
2: it's, it's different.
0: I would translate in as the New King James has here but you have the, the election and Peter is writing then to the elect strangers or pilgrims of the dispersion <clears throat> but then in chapter 2 he begins to discuss this doctrine of election and that's in chapter 2 verses 4 to 9 to 10, really, chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And that's from Isaiah 28. That quotation and let's just stop there for a moment because I think it's impo- one of the important things here is that he's talking about Christ, notice. He's not talking about, primarily about Christ's people. He's talking about Christ himself. And he says of Christ, he's a living stone who was rejected by men but chosen by God. Christ is the elect of God. Christ is the chosen one. From before the foundation of the world, and we are chosen in Him as the chosen one. This is a um, another aspect of the doctrine of election that Christ is the first of God's elect, just as He's the firstborn from the dead, and as He's the one who has preeminence over all creatures, and so on. He's also first in. Election. He is the one who is elect of God and precious to God. And then he goes on to talk about we, you also as living stones. You come to him, the living stone, and you as living stones come to him and are built up in uh, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the one, the cornerstone, the living stone, the one chosen by God and precious, we come to him and are built up as a spiritual house and a holy priesthood to offer up these sacrifices. And then he quotes from the Old Testament about Christ again. As the chief cornerstone, elect and precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And then uh, verses 7 and following. Therefore to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he's talking about the unbelievers there. And again, his focus is not on us. He's talked a little bit about us, but his focus primarily has been on Christ, and now it's on the unbelieving. And he says, they uh, stumbled at this uh, living stone. He was a rock of offense to them. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which also they were appointed. There you have the doctrine of reprobation. They were appointed to their stumbling at the word. To their stumbling at the rock of offense. So we can speak of God passively,
1: passing over people in judgment, Mm -hmm. but we can also say that they were appointed. So that's an active...
0: It's more... It's more than just a passing by. Reprobation is more than a passing by. They were appointed to stumble at the word. The penalty the word "passing by. But yeah. And it's fine to use the word. I don't have a problem with talking about reprobation as passing by, but you can go a little further. The scripture's language allows us to go a little further than that and say they were appointed to their stumbling.
1: Well, I've had this uh, nagging um, idea in my mind: is is God really passive about anything? Right. I
2: don't think so.
0: He's the sovereign.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't think of you. You can really speak of him being passive, as standing by Mm -hmm. and watching to see what will happen. No. It's not. Not the way, uh, not consistent with his being.
1: Although he does, I mean, Scripture describes God in anthropomorphic terms.
0: Yes. But it's very anthropomorphic in those cases.
1: That yeah. was my uh, question from the first part. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God is like. For those that think that they choose God, and there are those—I was listening to a lecture the other day—where a man thought that he could unchoose and rechoose and unchoose and rechoose. Yeah. Like, how, how do they picture God's foreknowledge? It's like, yeah, is it dynamic that it's always dependent upon the whims of men, or does He look at the the final? thing, or um,
0: ice. Yeah. It would be interesting, actually, and, and maybe we'll do that later. We're going to stop here, but um, and we'll come back to this passage. It would be interesting to look at the um, first head of doctrine in the canons of Dort, and the rejection of errors, because the Arminians, in their tr- attempts to explain the doctrine of election, went through all kinds of possibilities, And in that rejection of errors in the canons, the fathers went through every one of these possibilities that the Arminians had proposed and said, no, this is not true, the scriptures say this. No, this is not true, the scriptures say this. And and they considered exactly the kinds of things you're suggesting, that there's, they talked about different kinds of election, that there's an election that's conditional on faith and that there's, an, un, an unconditional election that's really conditional on perseverance. And there's, uh, they have all these different kinds of elections. They're trying to find a way to explain the doctrine of election without making it determinative of man's salvation, ultimately determinative of man's salvation. And so they have, came up with all these different suggestions, and the fathers went through all of them, and they said, no, 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 the scriptures teach... For each one of those things.
1: Yeah, I am listening to that tape of R.C. scroll today. Uh, he said uh, it seems that they're they're trying to rescue God from his, his sovereignty, his, his righteousness.
0: Yeah.
1: It's like it's a scary thought yeah. to think that I need to rescue God.
0: Yeah.